Las Vegas. It's so much more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Tens of millions of people share that feeling every year. And I'm just one of them. Here to take you to the world famous Vegas Strip and beyond. My name is Jeff and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 174 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode of the podcast, Adam Bauer, a.k.a. Travel Fanboy, a.k.a. Cheapskate Vegas. It's become a bit of an annual tradition for Adam to join me for a conversation where we discuss some of the past year's big happenings in Las Vegas, as well as share our opinions and predictions on what we think is going to happen this year. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 173, Sin City Oracles. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And here we go, getting back into the groove with another world-famous Jeff Does Vegas trip report. This time around, we're going to recap and relive my most recent trip to Las Vegas from February 4th to 6th. 2024. This was trip number one of the year, and I can honestly say this is probably the most spontaneous Vegas trip I've ever done. I literally woke up that morning and decided to go. In the span of about 90 minutes, I showered, got dressed, packed, booked my flight, booked my room, and drove to the airport. As usual, I've got a review of my hotel experience and my meals, plus I've got details on one of my favorite free Vegas attractions. I also had a chance to do a couple of resort walkthroughs, including one resort that just opened and another resort that just announced its impending closure. And as always, I've got a few additional thoughts and opinions to share. So without any further ado, let's get at it. As per usual with the world-famous Jeff Does Vegas Trip Report, we are going to start things off with my hotel experience. So this was a very spontaneous trip to Vegas. Uh, I quite literally was booking my hotel as I was headed out the door to the airport. So I was going to go with whatever gave me the best rate and something that I was familiar with. In this case, I settled on the horseshoe formerly known as Bally's. Not really sure if I have to keep saying formerly known as Bally's anymore since it's been, what, like a year and a half since they made the switch over from Bally's to the horseshoe, but I digress. I managed to score a ridiculously good rate. I booked a resort king room for roughly $11 a night plus resort fees. Yes, I had to pay the dreaded resort fees on this particular Vegas trip because my diamond status with Caesars had expired on January the 31st, and it sometimes takes a few weeks for things to renew when you're doing it through the Founders card. So yes, I had to pay the $45 a night resort fee to stay at the Horseshoe. I also paid about $11 a night to upgrade to a resort king suite, so as such, I was paying about $70 a night, which when you break it down to spend $70 a night to stay in Las Vegas, 
that's really not all that bad. Um, for those of you who aren't quite familiar with Vegas geography, let me fill you in on the location of the horseshoe in case you're new to the podcast or new to Las Vegas. Uh, the horseshoe is pretty much mid-strip just north of the Paris, uh, just south of the Cromwell, right across Las Vegas Boulevard from the Bellagio and Kitty Corner to the legendary Caesars Palace. I always like to share a few fun facts about the property that I happen to be staying at, some fun facts about the Horseshoe. When it originally opened back in 1973 as the MGM Grand, the Horseshoe was among the largest hotels in the world with over 2,100 rooms on site. It's played host to several famous productions, including the long-running Vegas showgirl show Jubilee and the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast TV show. The Zigfield showroom, which was home to Jubilee for so many years, was also featured in the hit movie Rocky IV during the Living in America scene with James Brown dancing and shucking and jiving as Apollo Creed got set for his uh, epic battle with Ivan Drago. Uh, the Horseshoe is also considered to be one of Vegas's most haunted properties. It was back in 1980 when the then MGM Grand was home to one of the worst high-rise fires in the history of the United States, claimed the lives of 85 guests, injured hundreds others, and uh, it's rumored that the spirits of those lost in the fire still wander the halls of the hotel. Uh, getting to my room now, as mentioned, I had booked a Resort King room and I did the upgrade to a Resort King Studio Suite, which I actually did via the kiosk. Now, it's been a long time since I've done a check-in at a Caesars property via the kiosk. I, I've had diamond status uh, through Founders Card for the last several years, so I generally would go and check in uh, through the diamond desk. Not this time. Did it through the kiosk. Um went flawlessly. It went quite smoothly. I had absolutely no issues at all. The only thing I don't like about checking in through the kiosk is that you can't really make any special requests. So if you want to make sure that you are far from the elevators or uh, have a higher floor or something along those lines, you can't really do that. You have to see a person in order to do that. The only options that you're really given through the kiosk is a room upgrade. Um, I was assigned a low floor room. I was given a room on the sixth floor, room 662A to be exact not to be confused with room 662 because there was a room 662, which almost at the very, very end of the hall on the sixth floor, um, it was right next door. And without even thinking, I just went to 662A and I, I'm very happy I didn't accidentally go to 662 because I heard people in that room and it would have been very, very embarrassing to be that person trying to open somebody else's hotel room. Um, I had an east facing room, low floor like that, no real view. I was looking at the roof of the backside of the property. I think it's the roof of the, uh, the convention halls and the meeting rooms and the arcade and things like that. I also had a lovely view of the self-parking garage. That was that was my view, east-facing. Um, the actual room itself was great. Uh, Horseshoes rooms, they were renovated somewhat recently. All of the rooms in the resort tower were renovated, I would say probably within the last five years or so. It was probably just pre-COVID when Bally's went through and spent a ton of money to do room renos and, and upgrades. So everything in the room was in really good condition. The furniture, the carpets, the walls, everything in, in again, just excellent condition. Uh, the Resort King Studio Suite, it's listed on the website being at 590 square feet. So it is quite a large room. Um, the 
standard room, the standard king room is 450 square feet. So again, it is quite a big room. It gives you a lot of room to, to sort of spread out within, within that room. Uh, the room included a fridge. In fact, there were two fridges in the room. There was one uh, tucked away in the wet bar, and then there was one in the credenza, but only the one in the credenza was actually plugged in and functioning. The one in the wet bar was not plugged in. Um, it was just tucked away in there. Uh, nice added amenity. This is, it's the little things, honestly. Um, there was a device charger on the nightstand, which I thought was kind of a neat little, again, just an added guest courtesy. It had a couple of USB ports. It had a wireless QI charger. So you can put your phone on there in order to charge it there without having to plug it in. Uh, did have a couple of standard outlets on there as well. Again, not a big deal, but I thought it was just a nice little touch. You're not having to go hunting around behind the nightstand for uh, extra plugs, and you're not having to use the somewhat sketchy plugs that are generally in the base of the lamps on the nightstand. Uh, added bonus here, the shower door didn't leak. I've talked about this before on past episodes of the podcast and past trip reports, where I've mentioned that for some reason, the positioning of the shower head, the positioning of the shower door, and the lack of a, a little ledge at the bottom of the shower door has caused leaks. I've experienced this in a lot of different hotels. As a matter of fact, last time I stayed at the Horseshoe back in May of 2023, I actually had the leaky shower door. You would have to put the bath mat or an extra towel up against the edge of the shower so that it didn't just leak out onto the floor and cause a big mess. So I'm not sure if resort management is listening to this podcast or they're getting a lot of the same complaints from other people, but uh, it's been quite a while since I've actually had leaky shower doors. My last few Vegas stays, I have not had uh, leaky shower doors. Um, the only real issue that I had with this room was that the spotlights that are on the outside of the property that are used to illuminate the building at night were basically shining directly into my room. This is one of the craziest things that I've ever experienced at a hotel anywhere, never mind a hotel in Vegas. Um, it was like daylight 24 seven in my room. Even with the curtains closed, there was still a fair bit of light bleeding in from around the edges of the curtains. The first night I was in the hotel, I actually woke up at one point and it was bright. It was like, I, I thought it was daylight and I thought, oh my God, I've slept in. I had all these plans. I was going to get up early. I was going to go for a walk. I was going to shoot some video. I was going to go get some breakfast, do some shopping, blah, blah, blah. Oh my God, what time is it? Holy hell, I must've slept in, rolled over, looked at my phone. It was 4.15 in the morning. <laughs> it felt like daylight. The second night that I was in the horseshoe, I went out for the evening and I left my, my, my room curtains open without even thinking. I just did. It was, it was bright out. It was daylight, like actual daylight out when I left. And by the time I got back, night had fallen everywhere except my room. Again, it was like legit daytime when I came in back to back into my room. I'm not going to lie to you. It was like legit daytime when I came back into my room. I'm not going to lie to you. This is actually the first time that I've ever debated on going back down to the front desk and asking for a new room after checking in. When I first walked into that room and I saw these bright lights shining in, I thought, oh my God, this is gonna be 
absolutely terrible for sleeping. It's not going to be a very relaxing stay. And if I had been staying more than two nights with my first night in Vegas not being a late arrival, I probably would have gone back down to the front desk and asked for a new room, either uh, higher up or on a different different side, facing a different direction, something like that. But again, because I was only there for two nights, first night was a late arrival, and the fact that I was only paying 22 bucks a night for the room plus resort fees, I'm not going to lie, I, I wasn't going to do a lot of complaining. I just slept with my head under the covers, and that pretty much solved the problem. Um, pros of the horseshoe, of course, the big, big pro of the property, location, location, location. I mean, you are probably in one of the best places to be on the strip. You walk out the front door of the horseshoe, you have got restaurants, shopping, casinos, everything, no matter what direction you go, you're making a left, you're making a right. You've got all those things within easy walking distance to you. Uh, great amenities right on site as well. Lots of restaurant options in the horseshoe. You've got everything from fast food and food court style right up to slightly higher end cuisine. So you've got all that. Plus you've got access to more restaurants and bars in the Paris, which is attached via an indoor walkway. So if it's raining out like it was when I was in town or if it's too cold or it's uh, summertime and it's too hot, You've got access to the Paris that way. Uh, as well, you've got the bazaar shops right out front of the horseshoe with more shopping, bars, dining, even a, a couple of new spots that have recently opened up, including uh, Blake Shelton's Old Red, the big um, uh, country bar slash venue, which I didn't get a chance to go into, but I did kind of take a look around and take a peek in the windows. There was a huge lineup of people to get in, and I just, quite frankly, didn't have the time or the patience to stand in line in the rain to wait to go into the venue. Uh, from all accounts, everything that I've read and heard about the venue so far, it's all uh, excellent reviews from what I've seen. The prices seem okay. And again, it does look like a very, very cool venue, but it's just, it wasn't something that I was willing to do at this point. Maybe on a future Vegas trip, I will actually pop in there and uh, and have a look around. Um, as well, easy transport to get around. You've got a monorail station on site at the Horseshoe, which means that you can do easy travel north or southbound along the east side of the Strip. You can go as far south as the MGM Grand, which gives you access to a ton of other properties, or you can go all the way north to the Sahara. So again, you've got easy access that way. Some of the negatives of the casino of the Horseshoe, um, some might say it is a little small. Uh, selection of the slots isn't great, but they do have a lot of table games and their poker room, if you're into playing poker, is absolutely outstanding. Um, they're also missing a sports book. They don't really have a sports book at the Horseshoe. So if you're into sitting and watching your favorite sporting event and placing bets, you don't really have that, that option or opportunity to do so. Uh, the other thing as well, so many of the properties have gotten away from live entertainment and the Horseshoe is one of those properties. There is no live lounge entertainment on site. So if you want to sit and have a beverage and enjoy some live entertainment, you're going to have to go elsewhere in order to do that. Overall impression of the horseshoe, as per my last few reviews, I would give it a solid four out of five. My humble opinion, it is probably one of the best hotel values on the Strip. Highly, highly recommend it, whether you are a Vegas first-timer or a Vegas veteran. Definitely a great place to stay is the horseshoe. <laughs> As 
course, anybody who's a regular listener to the podcast knows I am a foodie. I like to consider myself a bit of a foodie anyways. I love food. I think if that's what makes you a foodie, that's what I am. I love being able to come back from Las Vegas and share my dining experiences with you. Now, because this was such a short trip, I didn't really have much of an opportunity to hit up any new places. However, I did go to a couple of spots that I haven't been to in quite some time, starting off with the Grand Lux Cafe at the Venetian. It's been a little over a year since I've been to the Grand Lux Cafe. I always enjoy going there. They have a huge menu and somehow they make it work. If you are a viewer of any of the uh, cooking shows, the Gordon Ramsay shows like Kitchen Nightmares, things like that, uh, one of the things they do quite often when they go into a restaurant is they pare down the menu because they just have too many items on the menu. Somehow Grand Lux Cafe makes it work. They've got a massive selection of anything and everything for every cuisine, every level of appetite, every taste. They absolutely nail it. The prices are also somewhat reasonable as well. Now, when I say somewhat reasonable, I'm comparing it to other establishments on the strip. So what you consider to be reasonable may not necessarily be Las Vegas strip reasonable per se, but Grand Lux Cafe, again, they somehow managed to do it. Uh, for my meal, I went with the Cafe Beef Wellington, which included mashed potatoes and vegetables, which in this case were carrots and Brussels sprouts, both of which were cooked absolutely perfectly. I love Brussels sprouts. These ones were cooked just Mwah. The carrots were awesome. Just the right amount of crunch. They weren't soggy or mushy or whatever. They were just the right amount of crunch. They were cooked perfectly. Um, the Beef Wellington, when you hear about Beef Wellington, you probably have the traditional Gordon Ramsay Beef Wellington in mind, right? You've got the piece of beef, you've got it wrapped in the puff pastry with the mushroom paste surrounding the beef and all that. This was not that. This was a little bit different. Rather than that big piece of meat wrapped in the puff pastry, this was uh, smaller steak bites which then had that that mushroom paste on top of it with a piece of the puff pastry on top of that. Um, really, really good. I will say, though, I thought some of the steak pieces were maybe a little bit overdone, and I suspect that this is just simply because it's really difficult to cook smaller pieces of steak like that and cook them the way they're supposed to be cooked. I ordered them medium rare, and these were probably a little bit beyond medium, maybe just a couple of them were bordering on medium well. I mean, it was still good. It wasn't like they'd cooked it down to rubber or, or shoe leather or anything like that. It, it was just, it was maybe a little bit overdone. The puff pastry, same thing, was maybe just a little bit crunchier than it should be, but again, still really good. Overall, I was very happy with my experience at the Grand Lux Cafe. I was seated quickly. I did sit at a table. Usually when I'm by myself, I'll go sit at the bar, but in this case, I kind of wanted to just sit at a table. I didn't want to be forced into a socialization situation, if that makes sense. You sit at the bar and sometimes you sort of are, whether you're having a chat with other diners or the bartender or whatever. I didn't want that. I was tired. I just wanted to eat and kind of get out of there. So again, sat at a table all on my own. Uh, my server was awesome, um, was very attentive, but not overly attentive, made sure I was looked after, brought my food quickly, made sure my water glass was kept full. These are really just basics and things that you want, but I wasn't forced to engage in any long conversations with them, which again, I really kind of liked. The food was good. It, it was, it was 
exactly what I was after at that particular time. And the portion sizes were perfect as well. I didn't leave feeling absolutely stuffed, which I hate when I go out to eat and I feel like I'm going to need a wheelbarrow to get wheeled out of the restaurant at the end of it. It, it was just Again, portion sizes were absolutely perfect. I was able to eat everything without feeling like I was absolutely stuffed. Total price, all in, including an $8 tip, $49. That included my dinner and a beer. Again, as far as strip prices go, really not all that bad. Also got off the strip and headed over to uh, what is probably my favorite off-strip breakfast location, Lou's Diner. This was my second visit over to Lou's. My wife and I actually went there back in March of 2023. Uh, if you want to learn a little bit about the background and the story of Lou's Diner, I recommend that you uh, go check out their very, very cool story uh, back in episode number 148 of the podcast. That was the March trip report. I've got all the details on the background of Lou's Diner there. I got to Lou's at around nine o'clock in the morning and the place was already packed. Um, I managed to get in quite quickly. I did end up sitting at the counter in this case, mainly because I knew how busy it was. I would, was offered a table, but the only table that was available was a table for four. And I didn't want to be that guy who was taking up a table for four all by myself when people were coming in, groups of people were coming in and looking to sit at table. So in this case, I did actually go and sit at the counter. You can tell that Lou's is a local spot. There were tons of regulars who were seated at the counter who were all clearly very well known by the staff. The staff were being super friendly with the regulars. They were engaging in conversation, asking about their family, asking about their plans, asking about what their holiday season was like, things like that. It, it was really kind of cool to be in that environment and be in, like I say, a, a real true locals restaurant. Um, the staff again were amazing. They were working their asses off. It was really kind of fascinating actually to sit at the counter and watch the goings on behind the counter. I could see into the kitchen and I could see how hard the guys in the kitchen were working and I could see how hard the, the servers were working, getting everything out to everyone, doing a lot of the prep themselves. It was, it was really, really cool to watch. Um, I went with the Eggs Benedict. Again, anybody who knows me, anybody who's a listener of the podcast knows that I am an Eggs Benny fiend. And I can tell you that the Eggs Benedict this time was just as good as it was the first time I had it uh, back in, in March of last year. My food came out super fast. Uh, the server kept my coffee topped up, which was awesome. Again, portion size was great. I did not leave there feeling stuffed, but it was enough to keep me going where I didn't need to go and actually have a big lunch. I was able to just grab a, a coffee and a pastry later on in the afternoon, and that was enough to keep me going through until uh, supper time. I will say I do need to come back to Lou's for lunch at some point. They basically only do breakfast and lunch, and their lunch menu looked absolutely amazing. They've got some incredible soups and sandwiches on the menu and the desserts. Man alive. I was sat down right in front of uh, Reese's peanut butter cup cake. And I got to tell you, this thing looked just amazing. It was all I could do. It, it took every bit of my own restraint to not just pull the lid off of it because it was in one of those cool sort of glass cake case things, just pull the lid off and just 
take a little bite with my my fork, but I knew they'd notice because eventually I'd end up eating a quarter of the actual cake or half of what was sitting there. Anyways, um, Lou's Cafe, super reasonable, all in, including a $4 tip, total price, $22. Really can't complain all that much about that. What really got me with going to Lou's, unfortunately, was the price of having to take a lift. Um, it was a $22 lift ride. It's over on Decatur. It's maybe about a 15 or 20 minute drive from the strip. So it was about a $22 lift ride. That included my tip to my lift driver. I always tip my, my rideshare drivers. But 22 bucks to get from the horseshoe over to Lou's might be one of those places that you're better off going to if you're staying in Vegas and you have a car. Or again, if you just don't mind uh, grabbing a lift and spending the cash to get around, it, definitely worth the trip. Go to Lou's Diner. And last but not least, Robert Irvine's public house in the Tropicana. Now, I wanted to get over to the Tropicana because uh, it's been announced the Tropicana is going to be shutting down at the beginning of April 2024. It's uh, it's going to be closing up to make way for uh, Las Vegas's new baseball stadium for Major League Baseball. So I wanted to make the effort to actually get over to the Tropicana anyways. And the last time I ate at Robert Irvine's was all the way back in March 2019, so almost five years ago. It was very, very early in this podcast journey, and to say that eating at Robert Irvine's at that time was a poor experience would be a massive understatement. The food was not great. The service was not great. The place was empty. It just, it wasn't a good experience, but I thought, you know what? Tropicana is going to be closing down. I'll go there. I'll wander around. I'll have a bite to eat. And who knows, maybe over the last five years, the place has gotten better. Well, I can honestly say that, yes, it has actually gotten better over the last five years. I got there at around 530 in the evening, and it was absolutely dead, as you may have expected being at the Tropicana, which generally tends to be a bit of a dead property anyways. But this restaurant, there was hardly anybody in there. There was maybe five or six people sitting at the bar, a couple of other tables in the restaurant. And, and Robert Irvine's public house takes up a lot of real estate inside the Tropicana. So to see a restaurant this big, this empty was uh, a little bit shocking to say the least. But again, being that it's the Tropicana, not really all that shocking. It did get a bit busier as the evening went on, but it, it never got anything even remotely close to resembling being packed. I went with the fish and chips. Now, fish and chips can be a little risky sometimes. You don't really know, but it's it's pub food. I mean, how how much can they screw it up? Well, certain places I've eaten, I've found out exactly how much they could screw it up. But you know what? This was not the case in this particular situation. The fish was cooked perfectly. The batter was crispy. The fish was flaky, not soggy or mushy, as can sometimes be the case when you have that battered fried fish. The fries, they were awesome. Uh, they're clearly cut fresh, made fresh. They were delicious. The portion size was huge. If I were ever to go back to this place with my wife, I would split the fish and chips with her. It was three huge pieces of fish, a big portion of fries, and it came with the coleslaw as well. So again, very, very easily that you could split this meal between a couple of people. Um, the food was out hot. It came out fast. The service was great in this case. My server was super friendly. Again, just the right amount of attentiveness. She kept my water glass full. She came over, engaged in some nice chat, and then moved along. It was just 
absolutely perfect service. All in, total price, including the $8 tip, was $49. If you get an opportunity to go check out Robert Irvine's before the Tropicana shuts down, definitely suggest you go and give it a try. So I usually give shows and attractions their own segments when I do these trip reports, but because this was such a short trip and I didn't really have a lot of time to take in a lot of either of these things, I thought I would lump them all together in one segment. So here we go. We're going to start off with uh, the attractions that I checked out. And in this case, it was really only one, and it is one of my favorite attractions on the strip. And it's free, which is always a bonus. Of course, I'm talking about the Bellagio Conservatory at the Bellagio. I love getting into the Bellagio and going and checking out the conservatory. They do seasonal displays. They do a spring display. They do a summer display. They do a fall display, a Christmas display, and they do a Lunar New Year display, which is always absolutely incredible. So this time around, I happened to be in Vegas when the Lunar New Year display was on. The theme this time around was Infinite Prosperity, the Year of the Dragon. Featured some absolutely incredible Asian architecture, Chinese culture, folklore, including numerous dragons, even some dancing dragons, which was really, really cool to check out. Absolutely incredible, as usual. This is, again, probably one of my most recommended free attractions that you can go and see, and it's always absolutely jam-packed. As you're walking around this display, it's almost impossible to fathom the amount of work that gets put into these displays. It's quite literally hundreds of hours of work that go in to constructing these displays. And never mind the construction, but the actual planning of the displays is just absolutely amazing. If you ever want to see what the display looks like without going to Vegas and get an idea of how much work goes into both deconstructing the old displays and building the new displays, go to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com and click on the live cam link. And there's an Earthlink cam that is actually showing into the Bellagio Conservatory. And it runs 24-7, so you can see what's going on in the conservatory, including when they're doing the building or the teardown of the current displays. It's absolutely incredible. Now, unfortunately, by the time this particular episode of the podcast is released and these particular trip report videos are released the Lunar New Year display will be all done. Um, but they will be prepping for the spring display, which runs from March the 9th through to May 18th. If you want to know more information, you can go and uh, check out the Bellagio website, or as mentioned, uh, go check out the live cam page at jeffdoesvegas.com, and you can get a little sneak peek of what's going on in the Bellagio Conservatory. Show-wise, I really only had time to take in one show on this trip, and it's one of my favorites. It's one I've talked about umpteen dozen times on the podcast. I'm talking about Monday's Dark at the Space in the shadow of the world-famous Vegas Strip. Um, if you've missed me talking about Monday's Dark previously, I'll give you a quick little recap. Bi-monthly charity show held at the Space just off the Strip. Vegas entertainers come out, donate their time and talent to help raise $10,000 over a 90-minute 
period uh, for a local Las Vegas charity. Uh, Monday's Dark just celebrated its 10th anniversary, celebrated back in December. My wife and I were at the show for that. It was absolutely incredible. Um, this particular edition of Monday's Dark was being done the week before the Super Bowl was hitting Las Vegas. So the musical theme was Usher, who was going to be headlining the halftime show, and some absolutely incredible musical performances uh, just absolutely belted out by some Vegas entertainers who, again, come out to donate their time and talent, perform for the audience. Um, it is kind of interesting. The Monday's Dark team has put a fresh coat of paint on the show. So they've done a few things, which I think are, are absolutely amazing. They've tightened the show up a bit. Now, in the past, they've always said they would raise 10K in 90 minutes. And it was not uncommon for the show to go 100 minutes, 110 minutes, 120 minutes. <laughs> Sometimes the shows would start to, to go a little long. So they have now tightened the show up to make it a hard 90 minutes, which, which is great. I'm not going to lie. The show feels like it moves quickly. Uh, they've also cut down the number of musical performances. So uh, it used to be 10 musical performances, which is a lot of guests coming out and performing. They've now cut it down to six musical performances, which I have to say is also great because the Monday's Dark team can be a little bit more discerning about who comes out and performs. It's kind of nice. You're getting the cream of the crop. Not that you weren't getting the cream of the crop before. You were getting some great performers and some great entertainers. But again, this just makes it, I don't know, maybe just elevates it a little bit. They've also added a variety performance. So a comedian, a magician, uh, another performer of some sort. They've added that into the mix. For this particular show, it was actually Tapeface who came out. Of course, you might remember uh, Tapeface as an America's Got Talent uh, winner and a Vegas headliner. Also hoping to get Tapeface onto the podcast here at some point soon. And they've also added a very cool feature called Road Case Conversations, where they roll out one of those big old fashioned road cases, the big black and silver road case that you'd see uh, bands rolling around and taking to gigs. They roll that out on the stage and then they bring them out for a 10 to 15 minute conversation, which is really, really cool. For this particular edition of Monday's Dark, the Road Case Conversation guest was musical legend Tony Orlando. Yeah, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree, knock three times. That Tony Orlando, who lives in Vegas, has been headlining in Vegas forever. He actually came out and spent about 10 or 15 minutes on stage with Mark talking about his career, his time in Vegas, some of his charity work, things like that. I actually had a chance. I snuck outside after Tony Orlando was done and had a quick conversation with him, had a great chat with him. He's super, super nice guy. Again, just really cool. You never know who is going to show up for a Monday's Dark. You just got to see for yourself. Um, you can get your tickets if you're going to be in Vegas. Uh, check the schedule at mondaysdark.com. You can get your tickets on the website there. They're just $20 for the general admission seating or $50 if you want to sit at a VIP table. If you're taking a group, get a table, sit at a table. It's so cool and such a fun experience. And if you can't make it to the show, if you're not going to be in Vegas or maybe you're a little bit leery, you're not quite sure what you want to do, you maybe want to get a feel for the show before you spend the money on tickets, uh, by all means, you can actually watch a live stream of the show. Again, uh, they do that every time the show is on twice a month, the first Monday and third Monday of the month. Uh, you go to mondaysdark.com and you can watch a live stream of the show there. 
I took the opportunity on this trip to take a stroll through a few different Vegas properties, and I thought it might be fun to share my thoughts and opinions and impressions of those properties. I walked through a couple of properties that I haven't been through in quite some time, and I wandered through a brand new property that I hadn't had a chance to wander through as of yet. We'll start off with the Sahara. This is a heritage property in Las Vegas. It's a property that's definitely faced its share of struggles, particularly through the mid to late 2000s when the rest of Las Vegas was facing struggles as well. But this is a property with a very long and storied Las Vegas history. My opinion, the Sahara is a tragically underrated property. It's had a refresh in the last few years, including following the switchover from the SLS back to the Sahara, which it had back a few years ago. Um, the gaming area at the Sahara is huge, looks brand new. It's absolutely outstanding. They've got lots of great restaurants and bars on site as well, which I've had an opportunity to partake in uh, in past episodes or past trip reports, I should say. I've shared with you reviews of some of those places. My understanding of the Sahara as well is that the rooms are really, really nice. They always seem to have decent rates, and I know they've had a few specials for international visitors as well. So that's certainly something to check out. And the Sahara is right on the monorail line. So you've got easy access to the south end of the strip. You walk out the backside of the Sahara, you go up an elevator or up an escalator or across a bridge, and you get on the monorail and you've got access to the entire south end of the strip. The biggest struggle that the Sahara faces is simply the location. They are at the very north end of the Strip. In fact, I don't think there's another property north of them other than the Strat. And the distance between the Sahara and the Strat is long enough that you probably wouldn't want to walk it at night because it's maybe just a teensy, teensy bit sketchy. Anyways, that is the big struggle for the Sahara, simply the location. And quite honestly, that is one of the main reasons that I haven't stayed at the Sahara myself. I prefer to have a more walkable location. I like a spot like the Horseshoe or like the Flamingo or like uh, the Link or Caesars or somewhere like that, where I can walk right out of the property and be right in the thick of the action to stay somewhere like the Sahara and have to either take a lift or ride the monorail to get anywhere. I find is a little bit of a pain, and I'm sure that's probably a big obstacle for a lot of other people as well. Uh, let's talk about Fountain Blue, or as I like to call it, the oldest new resort in Las Vegas. This is a property that, despite only being open for a few months, really has a very long and colorful history in Las Vegas. If you want to learn more about the background of the Fountain Blue, I recommend you go and check out episode number 167 of the podcast uh, titled From Eyesore to Eye-Catching. I go deep on this uh, particular subject in the history of the Fountain Blue and talk about um, the past ownership and the past financial struggles and the struggle to get it built and why it's taken so long. But right down to it, it finally opened to the public in mid-December. In fact, it opened to the public the day after I left Vegas on my December Vegas trip. So I debated on trying to extend that trip by a couple of days so that I could go and see the Fountain Blue. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm glad I waited. I'm not going to lie. This is an extremely beautiful property. There's no question about it. It, it is a gorgeous property. They've clearly, you can tell the amount of money that's gone into it and the amount of uh, effort that's gone into the design and the construction of the property. Um, the blue bar in the center of the casino is is obviously, that's the 
the main centerpiece of the entire property and of the casino floor. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. They've got lots of very cool features and eye-catching accents. Uh, the whole property, of course, feels bright and fresh and new. The gaming area is absolutely massive. They've got lots of slot machines. They've got tons of table games. There are tons of dining options available at the property as well. Everything from ridiculous high-end places like Poppy Steak, You've probably seen some of the, the videos on social media from this place where the steak is brought out in a gold briefcase and it's it's hit with a branding iron and there's people singing and dancing. It's it's a little bit ridiculous. Uh, so they've got that, the $1,000 steak at Poppy Steak, all the way down to food court type fare, which looking at the prices there was actually, again, relatively reasonable. And when I say reasonable, it might not be as reasonable as your local fast food place, but when you're comparing it to other places on the Vegas Strip, it was actually pretty reasonable. It's also quite clear who they're going after with this property. Um, spoiler alert, if you're a low roller like me, if you're that guy that gambles a hundred bucks a day, you are not the audience for the Fountain Blue. They are going after high rollers. That is who they want in the property. Now, it does seem like there is a lot of opportunity for growth within the property. When I was wandering around up on the, the second floor, making my way over towards where the, the food court area was, there's still a lot of, um, of vacant retail spaces and places that are, are boarded over. There was only a couple of shops open up there. So again, I'm guessing that that it's probably about 75 to 85% vacant. So I'm thinking they still have a lot of room to grow there. As for popularity of the property, I'm not going to pass judgment on the popularity of the property. I was there at like one o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. So of course it was dead. It was one o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. Um, there's not going to be anybody there. It's, it's just, it's not going to be a hip happening place at one o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. Again, my opinion, the fountain blue, the biggest struggle they're going to face is the location. Again, they're on the North end of the strip. They are right across the street from Circus Circus, which is, is very, very weird. It's the oddest dichotomy to think of when you are, are looking at Circus Circus, which the most recent renovation they've done was adding a fresh coat of paint to the, the circus tent roof and making the, the pink pop a little bit more. Um, and then you've got this multi-billion dollar property right across the street, try to attract super high rollers. It's just, I don't know. It's very, very weird to see. Um, if you are going in that direction, again, you need to have a reason to be going in that direction. This is going to be the biggest hurdle that Fountain Blue faces is that location. Just for the simple fact that people are not just going to wander in the way they do at some of the other uh, higher end properties uh, like the Wynn and Encore or the Venetian Palazzo or the Bellagio or the Cosmo, where you're right on the strip, right in the thick of the action. People are just, they're wandering down the street and hey, let's go in here. If you're going to Fountain Blue, you you have to be going there for a reason. Again, it's much like Sahara. If you're going to Fountain Blue, you're probably going there to go to Fountain Blue because there is nothing else along the road really between the Win and Encore and Fountain Blue, except Tacos El Gordo and Resorts World. Those that's it. So again, weird dichotomy there of Tacos El Gordo and Resorts World. Anyways, um, Fountain Blue. I think they're going to do really, really well with the convention crowd. Um, they are just up the street from the Las Vegas Convention Center. So again, I think if you start tying in uh, events at the convention center with events at Fountain Blue, 
I think they're going to do really, really well with that crowd. And I do suspect that they are probably going to make some adjustments in their plans over the next little while to try to attract some of those maybe not low rollers per se, but maybe not so hoity-toity is what it seems like they're actually trying to go after. And finally, let's talk Tropicana. See it while you can, folks. The Tropicana is uh, going to be closing its doors April 2nd, 2024. That location is uh, slated to be the site of a new Major League Baseball stadium, as well as a uh, resort and casino owned and operated by the Bally's Corporation. This has been uh, a big bone of contention for a lot of people. There's a lot of folks that are not all that happy about the location. They're not all that happy about the Tropicana going away. Um, they're not all that happy about taxpayer money being used to pay for a baseball stadium. But again, if you're a fan of Vegas nostalgia, you're going to want to go and check out the Tropicana while you can. Again, another property that's got a ton of history behind it. It opened in April of 1957, so almost 70 years ago, 67 years ago to be exact. At its opening, it was the most expensive Las Vegas resort developed at that point ended up costing approximately $15 million to build, which would work its way out to roughly $165 million in today's dollars, which when you compare it to big resorts like the Fountain Blue that are up in the billions, $165 million really doesn't seem a lot, but in 1957, $15 million was a ton of money. Um, there is a lot of alleged organized crime involvement in the Tropicana, um, Frank Costello, mob boss Frank Costello, if the name is familiar, if you've ever visited the Mob Museum, you've probably seen Frank Costello's name pop up. He was once found to be in possession of a Tropicana earnings note. This was following an assassination attempt shortly after the resort's opening. Uh, as well, there was a huge mob skimming operation in the late 1970s. Uh, Joe Augusto, who's actually come up on this podcast before, uh, Joe Augusto uh, came up in my conversation with Claire White about uh, organized crime involvement in the entertainment industry in Las Vegas. Uh, Joe Augusto was running the uh, the Follies Berger show at uh, the Tropicana, and he was siphoning money from the cashier cage and taking it back to the Kansas City crime family. So again, there's some interesting history with the Tropicana, it's unfortunate that they haven't really done a lot to keep that history alive within the property. And I got to say, for all the love that people have for the Tropicana, it is an aging property that really either should have had a huge renovation or been imploded years ago. There was no, no middle ground on this one way or the other should have been knocked down or should have been given a multi-million dollar renovation. Um, wandering around the property, you get this sort of 1980s Golden Girls Miami cruise ship vibe. I don't really know any other way to describe it. I mean, you've got, there's orange carpets and white walls and a lot of palm trees and palm plants inside the property. Um, some of the, it, the property does have some cool features. I'll give it that. The pool area and the garden located uh, kind of at the back of the property. It's where the bungalows are located, which were the original hotel rooms and the oldest surviving hotel rooms on the Strip. There's a lot of people that say, they say the Flamingo is the oldest property on the Strip. And that's true, but really only in name. None of the original architecture of the Flamingo still exists. 
it's all gone. It's all been taken down. It's all been torn down and replaced with new stuff. Whereas the Tropicana, those bungalows, those are original. That was the original part of the Tropicana built back in 1957. Unfortunately, they were closed to the public back in November of 2023. That was sort of when things were starting to come out. News was starting to come out that the Tropicana was probably going to be knocked down to make way for the baseball stadium. So they decided to take those bungalows out of the uh, room rotation, which again is a little bit unfortunate. Also, right inside the main entrance, if you get a chance to go to the Tropicana before it shuts down, go in the main entrance and immediately look up. And for all the times I've been through the Tropicana, I'd never noticed this before. There's a stained glass ceiling inside the main entrance. Very, very cool. It's got its own cool history in and of itself. It covers roughly 4,000 square feet. It was installed back in 1979. And at that time, it was estimated to be worth more than $1 million. Now, when they installed this initially, the designers of the stained glass ceiling had to come up with a way to deal with the building vibrating. Every time the air conditioning units, because the air conditioning units on hotels in Vegas are huge, every time the air conditioning units would kick in, the building itself would vibrate. And of course, with a giant stained glass window, they risked the, the, the possibility that that stained glass would crack or break, or they'd run into some sort of problem with the stained glass. Well, they decided to design these, these shock absorber systems surrounding the stained glass. So essentially what's happening is when those air conditioners kick in or when the building vibrates, the building moves, but the stained glass ceiling stays stationary and the building moves around it. It's, it's really, really cool. And again, right inside that main entrance. So if you get an opportunity to get to the Flamingo or to the, uh, the Tropicana, I should say, not the Flamingo. If you get an opportunity to get to the Tropicana before it shuts down, um, go in that main entrance and immediately look up and you're going to see that very, very cool stained glass window, uh, stained glass ceiling, I should say. Now, very interesting situation that I ran into in the Tropicana. I, I filmed video and took photos in almost every property that I went into on this trip. In and out of every property, I took a lot of video and took a lot of photos. The only property where I was told no was the Tropicana. And I, by then, by the time I had been told no, I had already shot a ton of footage of the casino and of the gardens and the pool area and that bungalow area and the exterior of the property and things like that. And so I was in the, the main casino area and I wasn't even filming, um, I wasn't filming people. I wasn't filming casino games. I wasn't filming the tables, anything like that. I was very clearly taking video of the stained glass ceiling and I was walking along. And as I was walking along, I had this security guy, tiny little guy, maybe five, six, five, seven, sneak up behind me and just say, no video, sir. And he was very, I mean, he didn't freak out about it, but it, it was just, I found it kind of funny that a property that was going to be shutting down within a couple of months, that was the only property where I had any problem filming video. Other properties, they're all about social media people. As long as you're discreet. I mean, I'm not setting up a tripod. I wasn't even using a selfie stick. I was just carrying my video and I had my phone tilted up at the ceiling. And as I was walking along, I wasn't talking. I wasn't disturbing anybody. I was just taking video of the ceiling. This guy came up behind me and told me to stop. There was a, a little part of me, my inside voice 
inside my head, I was just like, what are you going to do? Ban me? Please 86 me. Go ahead. 86 me from the Tropicana so that I can put that in my Twitter bio. 86 from the Tropicana. How cool would that have been? As usual, I just want to close out this uh, world-famous Jeff Does Vegas trip report with just a few of my own little thoughts and opinions, a few other little observations that I happened to come across while I was in Las Vegas. I'm going to revisit the whole topic of learning how to cross the street in Las Vegas. (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, how many times I have to mention it, but it really is starting to get out of hand. Do not cross Las Vegas Boulevard against the traffic light. If the little orange hand is up there, that means don't walk and you should absolutely 100% follow that advice. Traffic patterns in Las Vegas are very, very weird. There's weird turning lights. There's weird green lights. There's weird stop lights. There's weird walk lights. And here's the thing. You're never 100% sure where the cars are going to be coming from. Once again, on this trip, I watched, I don't even know how many people nearly get run the F down by crossing against the lights. One of my favorite interactions actually came between a a cab driver and a guy who decided to cross because, quote, the light was green and I have the right of way. He actually got into a shouting match with this cab driver. Here's the thing. The light was green, but the don't walk sign was illuminated, which of course means he did not have the right of way, but this dude was 100% sure that he was in the right and he got into it with this cab driver. And I just stood there in absolute astonishment. I was shocked. I was amazed. Again, this guy, you can just tell he's one of those guys who, even if he's proven wrong, He's going to argue to the death that he was right. That was the hill that he was willing to die on. And based on the amount of traffic there, he he almost did die. Um, Every year, there are multiple people who get hit by cars crossing against the lights, tourists and locals alike. So again, if you're in Las Vegas, the don't walk sign is illuminated. Follow that advice. Don't walk. It means don't walk. It means don't cross the street. So again, unless you want to end up getting run down, you want to end up getting run over, you want to end up getting killed, do not cross against the light. Also want to share a couple of thoughts on the Super Bowl in Las Vegas. So I was in Vegas uh, about a week before the Super Bowl was actually supposed to happen. Um, Vegas leaning hard into the Super Bowl way harder, I think, than they did into Formula One. Vegas is is very clearly all about the NFL. That was blatantly obvious. Super Bowl marketing along the Vegas Strip was hardcore, almost to the point, well, I wouldn't even say almost to the point, I would say to the point of being 100% obnoxious. For example, um, CBS Sports took over the Bellagio fountains, completely blocking off the view. The uh, pedestrian bridge windows, they were blocked by big Super Bowl ads and logos, preventing people from being able to see out of the bridges. Um, Paramount actually took over the Mirage Volcano with the Paramount Mountain Experience. They had built this big mountain and this virtual gondola ride thing. Um, There were large ads being projected onto the side of Caesar's Palace, which, I mean, they looked cool, but I was really curious to see 
what they looked like from inside the room. I'm guessing they probably looked a little something like what the inside of my room at the horseshoe looked like with the, the spotlights being uh, shone in. Um, there were ads being projected onto the Sphinx at the Luxor as well. Weird lighting and bet MGM ads being projected on there. And the Brooklyn bridge was taken over by Frito-Lay out in front of New York, New York, including the Cheetos chapel where people could get married by a holographic Chester Cheeto. Listen, short of the road construction that was involved with Formula One that took up admittedly caused a lot of problems for a lot of people and was definitely, as I say, was extremely egregious, caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. Short of the road construction, I think what Super Bowl did to the strip was a hundred times more obnoxious than what Formula One did to the strip. Again, outside of all the road construction and watching footage of the Super Bowl traffic afterwards, it looked just as bad as Formula One. People were having just as much trouble getting around. I think, and hear me out, I think Americans just hate car racing or Formula One racing to be exact. Maybe that's just me. I probably just pissed off a lot of people with that comment. But you know what? I don't really care. It's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out via social media on Facebook, X, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. You can also email me directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thanks for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll be notified the instant a new episode is released. While you're there, go ahead and rate us and write a review. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes, show notes, Vegas deals, and more. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.